This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. I'm the king of the world! There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here for today's interview episode with David Canfield. Hi, Katie. David, uh, happy holiday, getting Hollywood holidays, uh, even if you, you're you working. Much of Hollywood is gone, um, but it is catch-up season for so many awards voters. Uh, and so we've got some great interviews to run uh, over the next two weeks. Uh, and David, you have both of our interviews on today's episode. Um, let's start with Taylor Russell, who is the star of Bones and All, and has really just been having this Star is Born moment. She's been at so many events. She's young and gorgeous and has been wearing incredible clothes and turns in this uh, really commanding lead performance in Bones and All, I think a lot of people like me didn't really know much about her before, and she's really put herself on the map. Absolutely. She won a Breakthrough Award at Venice where the film premiered, and we started by talking a little bit about just the journey that the film has gone on. And she mentioned spotting people along the way at various events who become a kind of safe harbor. And for her, that's Kate Blanchett this season. And I'm wow. like, what, what a thing to happen. We should for, all be so lucky. <laughs> we should My all goodness. be so lucky. <laughs> Um, but very well deserved. And I think very indicative of just how quickly I think her performance has caught on and, and her, her star power in this movie opposite Timothy Chalamet. She's really wonderful in the movie and anchors what is a very bloody, gory, at times quite strange uh, movie from Luca Guadagnino mm-hmm. um, quite effortlessly, it looks like. Yeah, I mean, Luca Guadagnino has really developed this kind of stealthy reputation for working with actors in a way that you don't expect and maybe they don't expect. So the performances in his movies are consistently such a highlight. And you imagine for a young actor who so often they just take what role they can get. This is such a, a dream opportunity to to show how you can hold a, a movie together that's strange and bloody, like you said. Yeah, and it's it's interesting how quickly it's quite clear she has fallen into the Guadagnino company. Mm. She says... Uh, In our interview, she's basically certain that they will work together again. And that's, I think, a special kind of bond to develop with the director. And obviously, Chalamet, Michael Stolbarg are in Bones and All. They've worked with Guadagnino before. It's how he tends to build up his movies and and the world uh, in which he makes them. And it's very exciting and, and deserving that she's now clearly a part of that world. Maybe she'll bring Kate Blanchett with her into Luca World. That we would can be only, a, a blessing. <laughs> we can only hope. We deserve that. We deserve that. <laughs> well, let's hear more from your conversation with Taylor Russell. Taylor Russell, uh, star of Bones and All, uh, one of the wildest, I think, movies of the year, and also one of the more beautiful ones. 
This movie's gone on quite a journey since you you premiered it in Venice. And I want to start by asking you about how the rollout of the movie would compare to what I think was your first experience with this kind of rollout, which was Waves a few years ago. I know it wasn't your first movie or anything, but it was kind of introduction to this you know level of industry, the side of the industry. What do you remember about that time and maybe the more newbie stuff that you've been able to carry now into this experience? With both Waves and Bones and all, I was with a group of actors and all the filmmakers that made those movies respectively, I loved a lot. So I was happy to keep seeing them again and again throughout, you know, the fall season of, of promoting each film. Um, and I, yeah, I really enjoy also, you know, seeing other films and it's really lucky to be able to meet the filmmakers who are making those films while your film is out and just kind of, I don't know, compare or have a friendly face in the room, just like run and hold a hand. And Kate is a great example. I saw her in Venice, win her award, of course. And then I've seen her a few times since. And it's very lucky that I can say that I, you know, can go up to Kate and say hi <laughs> now. Kate Blanchett, right? Kate Blanchett, yeah. Um, and I loved Tar so much. I think she, her performance is wild and incredible. Um, but yeah, there's kind of special little gems like that. And um, I, I'm lucky that I can keep learning and hopefully keep learning being in this industry and making more films like this. Yeah, from my perspective, it, it feels like such a whirlwind, just like seeing all of the places <laughs> that you guys are going. Like when you did when you did Waves, for example, do you remember like the first person or like the first time that you were like maybe had that kind of like Kate-like experience where you could say like, okay, this is a kind of surreal but safe harbor for me and all the craziness? You know, I loved Phantom Thread so much. Mm-hmm. And I saw Vicky Crepes at Telluride the first time that I went and uh, I had just seen Phantom Thread and was so excited to to meet her. Um, but I was trying to play it very cool. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> people like that I, I, I've remembered throughout the years. Yeah. Um, so with this movie, I'm, especially when you were in Venice, you know, there is a certain degree of fandom around this movie with Timothy and you as well. Um, and it seemed like quite a scene. Was it kind of, especially as you're just launching this movie, and I'm sure there's a lot of anxiety around how it's going to be received and everything. Was it kind of weird to navigate or how did that feel? Especially coming off of Waves with this being, you know, your kind of next big premiere. I was really just excited. I maybe should have had more trepidation, but I just felt like there was so much love that went into this story and so much care and it is a love story to me. So that felt like it was at the forefront of, of, you know, my thinking about it coming out and the world receiving it. Um, in, in terms of, especially early on, how you found conversations around the movie, you know, this is a, to some extent, at least a polarizing movie. It, it, it elicits pretty intense reactions like what kinds of things did you find people asking you about a lot? What kind and whether it was you know people like me or just uh, you know people who'd seen it who were you know viewers, what were those conversations like? And what how did you think about the way people were reacting to the movie? 
Well, in the theater, the first time I saw it was in an audience at Venice. Um, you know, I heard some laughing, which was interesting because I, you know, at uncomfortable moments and then did, you know, research after and found out why that was. It's an uncomfortable thing. Um, but also, you know, hearing that people got, some people got sick watching the movie or th those are really surprising uh, reactions to me just because I think always when you make, when you're on the inside of something, it's never going to be how the people, how other people receive it in terms of maybe the grotesque elements of it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, those, those sort of reflections were, were different than I thought that they would be, but I, I get it. Um, um, yeah, I think the amazing thing about this movie is that you can kind of, everyone is going to have a different takeaway. And if the love story is what hits you, then that's great. But also there's a lot of other elements of displacement and, um, you know, feeling like a loner or maybe you're somebody who just saw the horror parts of it and that's okay too. There's a lot of doors into the film and I've heard of really kind of every sort of reaction that you can think of. Very weird questions and very <laughs> heartfelt questions. I, I have to ask what the weirdest question you've gotten is then. Um, I had somebody ask me if I've had people reach out expressing their love of, or like if, you know, I don't know, something around the cannibalism and the answer is no, nobody's <laughs> said anything like from the cannibal from the cannibal community. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, the answer is, is 1000% no. I've had sweet, sweet messages. Nothing like, nothing like that at all. Okay. okay. That is a weird question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a weird question. Yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> but this you is know, the kind of movie. movie so. <laughs> yes, I was going to say, this is the movie that's going to lead to those kinds of questions. <laughs> yeah. So. It's good to be prepared for that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, to that point, though, you know, Luca Guadagnino is uh, your director, is someone who has very specific ideas. I've, I've interviewed him at this film a couple times. And in terms of the weird factor, was that, I suppose, acknowledged in your early conversations with him, especially given also how deep this movie is? and how it balances these elements of real intimacy and gore, and it has all these elements. I'm curious how you kind of wrapped your head around it as you spoke to him about it. You know, at that point when I met Luca for the first time on FaceTime, he didn't audition me for the role that had never happened to me in my career before. Um, mm -hmm. But he had seen waves and I guess felt like he saw something. I don't know what. Um, and when I read the script for the first time and read this girl, this strange person who felt like she was on the outside looking in and coupled with, you know, kind of finding your soulmate in your weirdness, that was what hit me and struck me more than anything. And I think maybe it kind of sounds unbelievable to, to hear that um, considering the, the chrysalis of cannibalism that, that holds this movie. But I was so desperate to play a character that I felt encompassed all these parts of my heart and soul that hadn't really been explored yet. And feeling like this was the vehicle to do that was the most exciting and the biggest part to me. And I knew that, um, you know, Luca was going to take care of the rest. Like, 
my concern was the emotional storyline and, and keeping that and finding her. And, and I thought, okay, I don't really need to worry about all the gore and all that because Luca will hold me there and take care of that part of it. And I'll learn a lot when I get to Ohio and start filming on how to, how to navigate that part of it. But I think, yeah, for, from other actors I've talked to, at least I can't speak for all of them, but we're always terrified about getting the emotional beats right. And, and, and the physicality of the cannibalism kind of felt like a, an afterthought in a way. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Given the degree to which you did connect to this character and feel, you know, that she was right for you to play, not that you had any disagreements with Luca, but as he is someone who kind of knows what he wants and you get to filming, like what kinds of, I suppose, back and forth did you have or what particular parts of the movie maybe were there the most conversations about um, that you felt strongly about? Every day is different. With Luca, I think in general, as a filmmaker, I, I haven't worked with him. All, I've only worked with him once, but that's kind of the sense that I get that it's um, always going to be spontaneous and you're never really going to know what's happening, um, which is scary. I mean, mm-hmm. I was scared every day going to set. Can I do what is required for what I want, you know, in my kind of perfectionist brain, but also for Luca and for my my cast members and um the unpredictability of it I think I worried a lot about that um but also I think the way that I gelled into their circle I'm kind of I'm more introverted and um I take a while to kind of process things and have Mm -hmm. my feelings on it um and and I was pushed out of my my comfort zone in a lot of ways so in terms of back and forth with Luca, I mean, there was back and forth every day because things were always different and we were shooting in a place that none of us had ever been before. But there wasn't any specific, you know, disagreements about character or whatever. He kind of just saw what I was doing and let me run free in a lot of ways and be wild. Hmm. Did Timothy or even like Michael Stolbarg give you some tips on navigating that unpredictability lay it out for you like this is what he's like at all you know actually um fernanda perez the makeup artist who's worked with luca for 30 years they've been friends mm, for 30 yes. years who's so excellent who also um i don't think i could have done the movie without she really supported me from the beginning to the end i asked her on the first day what should i if you have advice for me what would it be because she's known him for so long um hmm. and she said don't try to do anything you've done before. Be wild and jump off the cliff. Something to that effect. And I just thought, okay, uh, okay, 
that that felt very clear to me. And that, I think that's pretty good advice for entering a Luca set. If anybody who listens to this is going to work with Luca, <laughs> keep that in mind. It paid off. <laughs> yeah. Your old self is gone. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we've locked her away. Yeah. Uh, I know Luca brings a lot of, you know, reference points, films that he loves, that he brings to everything he does. Uh, and he gave you kind of a watch list, right? Yeah, yeah, he did. Was that for, like, specifically for you? Did he give it to the rest of the cast? And and how was that experience for you? No, that was um, a list specifically for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and all movies that I've watched again since after filming, um, Jean Dilma, the Chantal Ackerman film, um, Vagabond, Agnes Varda, In the Realm of Senses, I think Oshima, um, Germany, Year Zero, and A Man Escaped. Uh, I mean, they're vastly different films, but they yes. have, you know, most of them, with exception of In the Realm of Senses, which is about lovers, it's about this one person who's try who's fighting against the environment, um, trying to blend with it, but also trying to get out of it. And, and that, you know, the stirring that is born from there. And also Lucas, I think one of his gifts is that he thinks about the physicality of a character a lot. And when you look at Lucas movies, you can tell distinctly, you know, how Elio moves and call me by your name. Um, how Jack Dylan Grazer moves in, in We Are Who We Are and Tilda Swinton and A Bigger Splash and Dakota Johnson and Suspiria. All these characters feel very specifically physical. Um, mm -hmm. And before we started, he said to me, you know, you tend to be more graceful as a person. You need to feel more like a rock, like there's there's a heaviness to you. And, and that was really helpful too, because I was just throwing my body around in different ways all day. And um, I grew up dancing, so I think about body and movement a lot anyway. Um, and I, I those challenges are, are fun. Yeah, in terms of those movies, he can really give you a pretty incredible education, I feel like. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. Yeah. Agnes Varda now I have a new found love for. I, yeah, and he's she's very evident in his work, I think. Yeah. So with all of that, what he's, you know, this, this sense of like trying something new, try, you know, forgetting what you've done before, um, like what do you discover about yourself as an actor in that process on this movie and going forward? Well, I feel what I felt during this movie and what, I, what I'm noticing in as an actor as I keep going on this path more um, is that you kind of end cycles through characters or you can and playing Marin and bones and all felt like the end of some sort of emotional cycle for me. And, and now I feel like even what I'm reading, what I'm interested in at the moment, art that I'm drawn to feels like my palette has been cleansed and has changed in a new way. Um, mm. And what I'm looking for and whatever I do next feels different than what I was interested in prior. So I'm interested to see how that kind of trickles into the work and, and where that takes me. Um, but I, I think it's pretty necessary or else you're going to be playing the same characters again and again. And not that that's a bad thing, but it's not exactly the way that I want 
to do things. Mostly, I think, just because I am a contradictory person in my heart and <laughs> am interested mm-hmm. in a lot of, I, I want to hear different perspectives and I'm more interested in maybe not understanding something and disagreeing with somebody than feeling comfortable and that we're all on the same page. I I think there's some value to be found in that. So whatever was born through the process of shooting bones of don't use any of the tricks or don't do anything you've done before has lasted in me throughout, you know, the past year and a half since we wrapped. I'm also curious just from the outside looking in, the Luca company feels like a really fun place to be in. <laughs> and he does tend to work with people a lot. I feel like you're kind of in that company now. How would you describe the experience of, like, after you make the movie and you guys are, you know, as mentioned earlier, doing a lot of stuff together, but also he's clearly a fan of yours. What is that experience like of just being in that in that circle, I suppose? Oh, it's the luckiest circle to possibly be in ever as an actor. It's like, the, I don't know, Mecca in some way. Um, yeah, he keeps great company other than the, you know, the wonderful actors in his, in his wheelhouse. There's just the people around him, Fernanda and Massimo and his producers that he's worked with for a long time. It really does feel like such a tight knit family and you kind of can't enter his world without knowing and loving and being kind of enmeshed with everyone in it. Um, and I have, you know, 15 new family members, I feel like, um, from working with, with Luca, I feel very privileged to say that, you know, I know we will work together again. Um, we're very fond of each other. Um, I can say, I hope I can say that. Lucas said that. I, I get so the I'm sense. Gonna... <laughs> He's, he said it. Lucas you're you're safe. safe. Um, yeah, I can't wait until the day that I work with him again. And I hope I work with him for the rest of my career. Um, and uh, we're all kind of similar in, in a wild way, um, which is what I've noticed about his his family group. Um, but I feel so lucky to be a part of it and... Uh, I feel so loved within that family. So it's a nice, (laughs) it's more than nice. It's like winning the lottery. Yeah. Is there a scene in the movie? I'm particularly interested in maybe a scene with Timothy where it went in a direction you didn't expect, either in playing it or in watching it back, because both Luca and Timothy are, are known as people who, as you say, are very spontaneous, who like to discover new things on the fly uh, and I, I'm getting the sense you're like that as an actor as well. So there's there's probably a lot of room for things to go in unexpected directions. Yeah, definitely. Um, in my life, I'm I'm most certainly like that. And on on a set, and when I'm working, I I want to be I want my eyes to be opened in a new way, which is why it's invigorating to work with Timmy and Luca because that's the priority for all of us on set and and in a scene. One of my favorite scenes of the film and the one that went in a different direction maybe than I had thought about it prior to shooting it was the scene on the cliff in Nebraska in the Mm. third act of the movie when we're um, talking about Timmy's or Lee's dad. And, you know, I can't even say specifically what I thought about it. 
you know, you have these ideas of how it's going to go or what you need to do or what the moment is. And both of us really just after reading it for the first time or doing it, we're like, okay, this is different than we thought it was going to be, but perfect. Sink into that. And it should, it shouldn't be what we thought it was going to be. And it is what it is right now. And even if we can't understand it, it's right on. Even if it doesn't feel good, it's here right now, which means it's right. And that's sort of giving up to, you know, the moment I think is, is important and you need to have that trust as an actor. And when you're working with other actors who have that level of trust of the present moment, then that's when the best stuff is born. But that scene surprised me. And after I felt like I was just so curious to see how it, how it turned out. But I, I love, I love Timothy's acting in that scene. And, um, and also the setting is just beautiful and, Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were up for three days, like three days and nights. I, I felt like we didn't sleep for <laughs> for a few oh, days wow. shooting that because we had to shoot at sunrise and sunset to get the right light. It must be a different kind of experience than to go to a studio, which you mentioned with Mark and Timothy for the finale, <laughs> which the movie's out. We can talk about it a little bit. Um, given like the intensity of that sequence, um, like how did that, how would that contrast in terms of like just wrapping your head around how that's going to go and like down to the makeup because by the end of that sequence, there's a lot of makeup work. Well, it was the first time that Mark, Timmy and me had all three been in a scene together. Right. Um, and we were just, you know, asking Mark questions all the time and Mark's always on set. So he's around and really present and um, it was just fun. It was just fun to work with them. And it was a, together. And, um, it obviously is a very uncomfortable, gory scene, but at the same time, it felt very free, even though we were in a studio, um, because there was this little container of this room that we could go wild in. So the contrast between working outside and kind of having so much space and then being in a confined environment and having to create that space the biggest thing I remember actually is that there's a close-up of blood going in my eye and Luca, like a little kid, the camera was very close up and Luca came, asked to spray the blood in my eye and had like a spray bottle and just, <laughs> it made me laugh so much because <laughs> I thought, yeah, this is a, this is it. It's gory and bloody and all these things, but there's so much fun actually beneath it all and Um, And we're all like little kids in a way. Okay, David, now let's hear your conversation with Bill Nye, the star of Living, a movie that premiered almost a year ago at the Sundance Film Festival. And I think uh, people like us who really keep an eye on awards things ever since have been being like, you know what, Bill Nye, like that movie's got something. This might be his moment. And lo and behold, it's Bill Nye's moment. He keeps getting nominated for everything. He sure seems to be a major contender in the Best Actor race. Um, How's he feeling about all this? Uh, I think he's very humbled by it, perhaps a little overwhelmed. This is a character actor of many, many decades in this business who has very rarely been the face of a project, especially a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you mentioned, the movie premiered at Sundance. So he's been talking about this movie, being the face of this campaign for a very long time. And 
you know, he's he seems very happy to do it. I think he's also maybe taken a bit aback by how much affection there is, both for his performance here and for um, what's felt like a kind of career capping moment with a lot of opportunities to talk about the road he's had uh, in Hollywood and beyond. I mean, he's he's a character actor, as you said, so he's been part of really, you know, big popular ensembles, like Love Actually being a major example. But Living is his movie. He is at the center of it. And his gravity kind of dominates the whole thing. It's this very, in some ways, straightforward movie, um, you know, about this man who's kind of learning how to live after getting a, a fatal diagnosis. Um, but he's so crucial to why the entire thing works. You can, you can imagine why everyone is really falling over themselves to praise him for it, but also the pressure that that would bring. I think what's really special about his performance here is that it um you can see some of the choices that he makes in a way that doesn't feel too actorly or anything but mm. very key to the character. We talked about his vo- his character's voice and how he comes in so quiet and then this singing scene where he really comes alive. Mm-hmm. Um the physicality of really embodying the period and what it meant to be a British man in this period. Um and and he plays it so naturally, but also so deliberately and um, also so warmly. And there's so much there's so much affection in his performance for this character that I think translates to everyone watching. Yeah. Uh, well, let's hear more from your conversation with Bill Nye. Bill Nye, you're here to discuss your film uh, Living, which is already a big hit in the UK. I've heard from a lot of people who have seen it. Has it surprised you the lengths that this film has already traveled and the amount of people it's found, uh, given that it you know, was a small Sundance discovery? Yeah, I don't think anything could have prepared us for the, uh, the depth of the response and the, and the kind of universal uh, welcome that this film's got. Uh, I, you know, I thought we were making a good film, and I, th- I knew we had a great script from Kazuo Ishiguro, the Nobel Prize-winning novelist, and I knew that w- Stephen Woody is one of the great English film producers of all time, and the cast were impeccable. I knew I was in good hands. And Oliver Hermanus, this the young director who'd never made a film outside of South Af- Africa before, turned out to be a genius, along with Jamie Ramsey, his cinematographer. All of those things were you know, plain, but, uh, but you never know, you know, and you can't, um, and it is a, you know, it's a film where nobody um, carries a gun and nobody takes their top off. I did offer to <laughs> take my top off, but they told me to put it back on. Next time. But, uh, next time, maybe, yes. Yeah. Uh, but it was, you know, number one across the nation, and that's, uh, it's, it, it, it's, you know, it's very, I find it very obviously gratifying and very moving that that should be the case, that uh, you never know. Mm. Yeah, Oliver Hermanus is not, necessarily the director you would expect to make this movie as a young South African. Uh, this film is very steeped in 50s British life and uh, the conventions and mores of the time. So how did he strike you as you started making this movie, started talking about it? I suppose he brings a different kind of perspective, maybe. Well, yes, I think both, well, I know Stephen Woolley and uh, Mr. Ishiguro were looking outside of England for a director, just so that somebody would have some distance and would have a, a, you know, a foreign eye because it's so much about English convention and the, and that particular 50s uh, kind of uh, English life. They wanted someone who could, who could view that as an outsider, as something exotic and comment upon it accordingly. Um, and also we'd all seen Moffie, M-O-F-F-I-E, mm-hmm. which is Oliver's 
uh, previous film, which when we were all blown away by that. So I knew I was in good hands. You know? mm -hmm. um, so in terms of Ishiguro, that's really the roots of this project are, are with him and particularly your involvement in it. I believe his plan was to write this uh, sort of remake. Oh, it's very much its own thing for you. What is what is one's reaction to something like that, especially when it is one of the most decorated writers of our time? I know it's hard to it's hard to contain the information when you first realize that that's what's happening. All I all I did was go to dinner. I went to dinner with Stephen Woolley and his wife Elizabeth Carlson, also a great producer, and I and the other guests were Mr. and Mrs. Ishiguro. And at the end of dinner, he said, "We know what your next film should be." And uh, I thought he was kind of kidding, you know. Uh, and then a couple of weeks later. Stephen rang and said that this was his suggestion. Yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, it's a, you know, it's an incredible development as far as I'm concerned. You know, it was, um, you never, you know, I, I would never have imagined that something like this could happen. And, and then there's a degree of apprehension because you don't want to mess it up. You know, this is such a, an opportunity. So, uh, uh, you know, and it turns out, you know, even I have to admit, I didn't mess it up. You did not. <laughs> it's uh, it's one of my favorite performances of yours, which is saying something because you've had well, quite a career. Um, and I think a lot of that is rooted in how subtle it is and how subtle it has to be, given the kind of character you're playing. Starting with, I suppose, the voice and the soft-spoken nature of this character, I believe that you didn't really even know how you would approach it until you started filming. Is that right? That's sort of right, yeah. I mean, I'd, you know, I... I'd, I'd studied hard and I'd said the lines over and over and over and over and over and over again in order to give the impression that I'd never given, never spoken them before. That's the gig. That's my job. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what actors do. There is, it's not rocket science, but it's not nothing either. But uh, the actual tonally, I think I really only arrived at that particular tone um, when I first spoke the, the, the very first line of the movie. And I did expect the sound man to come over and say, Bill, please, really? We're going to do this for seven weeks? Um, but he never came near me, so I just kept going. And it seemed to be, I, I, maybe I decided prior to that, I did feel that he would have a kind of reluctance to make too much noise. You know, <clears throat> I figure he's, he's someone who's, he lost his wife at a very early stage in their marriage, and he's been institutionalized in grief since then and his personality and his way of presenting himself in the world has formed around that grief around that loss and it seemed therefore i don't know logical that his voice might struggle to 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 reach to to make it out of his body you know and that mm. his and his physicality would be uh, reduced would be uh, movement would be there would be no sudden moves and there would be an energy that was, that most of his energy goes into containing things rather than expressing anything. Hmm. Was that a, a different way of going into a character for you? I, I associate you often with a, a certain kind of exuberance, maybe. And obviously, you've played a range of characters, but this is one where he is extremely, at least initially, limited. And we see this blossoming over the course of the film, but it's, it's a very specific way that you have to start. Yeah, it is. It, uh, it is unlike. I mean, I have played what they call quiet men before, quiet mm. people before, but uh, this, I suppose, is 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 different from other things I've done, um, and I welcome that. I didn't. I don't. I didn't really think of it in 
in the context of my career or anything. I just, mm -hmm. you know, you just try and do the whatever's put in front of you at the time, you know. But uh, yeah, it is it is different, and it was and it's quite grueling because it, it physically because it does actually weirdly it requires a, quite a lot of energy to 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 contain everything and to sort of be that that uptight yeah. uh, is quite you know is is not nothing. Given that, I wonder if you can talk about the singing in this movie, which is when this character comes to life, and it seems like you as a performer do get to do exactly what you're saying. You know, get out of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah a little quite. Bit. Well, yeah, it was. Um, it's a very. Uh, it's a weird thing for me. Singing is not something. I mean, I li I like singing when there's nobody around, and I do it a lot around that. You know, like everybody. I you know, <clears throat> I sing around the house and whatever. But singing publicly, I'm not entirely comfortable with it. I've had to do it in a, a few movies, but luckily I've never had to be really, really good or anything. I'm, I've never been. I've never played. Well, I have played as professional singer, but he wasn't supposed to be, you know, right. Robert, <laughs> Robert Plant. You know, he wasn't supposed to be, you know, a terrific singer. <laughs> uh, and this is just this guy. This in this movie, I'm an. I'm not. I'm an amateur. I'm a guy who's had a few drinks in a bar, so I'm not supposed to be, you know. Caruso, but but I uh, but within the story and the fact that it's the it's the singing that unlocks his uh, emotions, then I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm involved in, and it was very useful. It's like at funerals where you're fine until you're required to sing, and then you fall hmm. apart. You get to the second line and you can't, you can barely, you know, get through it because of the because it does seem to unlock something in you, and the song. <clears throat> Luckily, I didn't know prior to doing shooting that scene that that song is a very, very special song for Mr. and Mrs. Ishiguro. It's like she, mm. Lorna, Lorna is Scottish, and it's one of her, their favorite songs, and it has meaning for them as a couple, which uh, would have just added to the pressure. So uh, I'm glad I didn't know until afterwards. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm curious... If you've had another experience um, on a film where you kind of came in knowing a part was was written for you, essentially. Yeah, I have. I mean, over the years, people, sometimes there is a, you know, sometimes people will say, oh, I wrote this for you. And then they send you the script and you've got two scenes and seven lines. And you think, oh, you were thinking of me. Well, well you weren't thinking of me very substantially or there's the other one where they say they they read, wrote it with you in mind but you don't believe them because you think it's a way of sweet talking you into getting the, taking the job um but i have been i have actually done you know david hare who i've worked with all my life mm -hmm. the great the great english writer uh i've uh, i made i think three films with him for uh, the hbo bbc hbo which i know um which are now on Netflix, called the Warwicka Trilogy, yes. which I now know uh, were, I knew then were written with me in mind. 
Um, and, a, you know, uh, Joe Pennell wrote a play called Blue Orange, which uh, he says he wrote for me, and I, and I, and I choose to believe him. Okay. So I, I have had that experience before. But it doesn't really, you know, they don't write precisely for your speech patterns or anything. You know what I mean? It doesn't. Yes. People, I think the, people have, have the idea that it makes it easier or something. It doesn't. It's just the job remains the same. But it's a fabulous, uh, you know, when people start writing things with you in mind, that's a, yeah, that's a, you have my attention. Hmm. Especially in the case of a movie like this, where it does go on quite a journey, you know, it, it gets this kind of campaign rollout, and you are the face of it. How have you found that experience, especially given it's safe to say you're more associated with, at least in bigger movies, more supporting roles? Yeah, um, it feels good. You know, I mean, I, I'm just very, very happy that this film, it, this was the first film I did after COVID. And everybody was kind of, and it was the same for a few people involved. Mm -hmm. And I found that very affecting, not just that we were making a film and we were back and we were in one piece and, you know, and it was possible, but also that we were making this film and this and telling this story, which I think is, I think it would always have been timely, but it's super timely now. And I was very, uh, and the fact that it's caught fire uh, and has opened so rapturously in, in the UK is, uh, you know, you, you can't be prepared for. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled by that. You know, don't mistake me for anyone who isn't absolutely, you know, over the moon about that. The fact that I have to front it, yeah, you know, I mean, I, you know, it can be kind of daunting sometimes. You know, you think, please, can you all look the other way for a while? But, uh, but you know, it's, uh, it's what they call a, I think it's what they call a champagne problem. So I'm going to shut so. up. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna shut up and get on with it. I, I don't believe I'm the first to have said some nice things about you in this movie, though. It's, it's been out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I never, I don't actually read anything, but I, I, I am alerted to the facts. You know, I know that, I know that we're doing okay. Yeah. One, one other element of taking this movie around during award season is getting to, I suppose, encounter your. I don't want to call them competitors, but other people who are in the season. And it struck me that a number of actors like yourself, including Brendan Fraser and Colin Farrell, are, are having this kind of moment where, you know, they've been in this industry for a long time and there's a lot of recognition for what they've done this year. And I'm curious if you've, you know, encountered them and experience what it's been like to experience going on this with other folks. Yeah, no, I met Brennan Fraser for the first time. He was gracious and charming. And, and I met Paul Dano and I met uh, all in, in, at the same time. And I met uh, Austin Butler and Jonathan Majors. And I met Adam Sandler. Uh, you know, we all sat around a, a round table. It was kind, mm -hmm. of, excruci kind of excruciating. <laughs> you know, I mean, but they're all very, very cool guys. And everybody knows the situation. And no one's, no one's got their tongue hanging out. You know, it's like... We, as you say, we've been around. So it's like, and every, you know, the celebrations can already begin. You know, you don't have to, right. you know, it's fine. You're, 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 you know, you're, you're mentioned in dispatches. It's great. You know, I, I, you know, it was great to meet all those guys and they were all very sweet and very cool. Um, uh, and I was particular, I have to say, because Punch Drunk Love is one of my favorite films of all time. Mm. And that, and that performance, I wrote, I told Adam, so I, I was determined that I wasn't going to tell him because I, uh, 
I thought, don't do it. Don't gush all over him. Just be cool or something. And then as soon as I met him, I told him, you know, I just found myself <laughs> saying, you, you know, Punch Drunk Love is one of my favorite films and uh, Uncut Gems is incredible and you're marvelous in the hustle. And after I saw, um, after I saw uh, Punch Drunk Love, uh, I, I wrote his name on the front of my next script. Uh, because I didn't want to forget, you know, what he'd achieved in that film. And, and I was, and, and that kind of uh, deeply uh, integrated, I can, uh, you go straight into cliche when you try and talk about this, but it's sort of buried comedy, which is, you know, mm. where no one gets caught trying to be funny, and yet the audience fall apart every minute and a half. It's just, it's a magnificent, and it's very, very moving and totally truthful. You know, everyone in that movie is fantastic, you know. So yeah, I was very pleased to meet him, and he was, you know, super cool and very, very uh, solicitous and gracious, lovely as I did, you know, as they all were. So yeah, but it is an odd situation, you know, acting as a competitive sport. It's sort of it is bizarre. odd. <laughs> it's, it's sort of bizarre, you know. But every but everybody knows the score. Everybody knows what that you know. Everyone's cool. Yeah, I think it's it is nice when you get a group of people who who exactly as you say know the game, have been doing this for a long time, and yeah, maybe deserve a little bit of a moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Um, so for this year, I was going over your credits and you had, you know, a leading role in this film. You have a role in a Florence and the Machine music video. You played an alien in The Man Who Fell to Earth. You voiced the speaker in the video game Destiny 2. Wow. That is, <laughs> that is a very singular uh, 2022 resume, I would say. Yeah, no, that is, I'd forgotten about a couple of those. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it was great. Yeah, it was lovely. It was lovely to be with Florence. Uh, she was, God, she's impressive. My God, she's exemplary. She was wonderful to to work with. That was a tough. They're tough those shoots, you know. Yeah. The sad. The sad thing about that was that we were in Kiev uh, just a few couple of months before the war broke out. So having been in that city, that beautiful city, it was uh, even more kind of tragic to hear about the developments. Anyway, but yeah, that's a very, I like it when it, it gets varied. You know, I've been lucky like that. You know, I, I get to play, play a range of parts. Um, when I was young and sort of eligible to play romantic parts, although I wasn't quite kind of, you know, cute enough, but I was, uh -huh. uh, I was sort of in, the, in the, that vague sort of category. I was very uncomfortable playing those kind of parts because I, I thought you had to sort of be it rather than act it. And I was, and I didn't, sure. I, certainly, I certainly didn't feel it. So I was, you know, I was a bit at a disadvantage. And she, she understood that. And she used to start, she started sending me up for what would be called character parts. And I got to do a, a range, you know, and I got some of them. And I would get to do different voices or different, you know, all kinds of stuff. So I think the seeds of it began there. Hmm. How, how do these different kinds of projects come to you? And how do you, I suppose, decide what you're going to do? Because it is, you know, from a music video to a film like this, it's a huge range. Yeah, well, I'm just very, very, very lucky. You know, it's like, you know, I, I, I mean, the, the, the um, music video came because I know Florence a little bit. I knew her before a little bit. And but but mostly because and obviously that was her decision. But uh, and but also because I know Autumn De Wilde, who directed Emma, Emma the, Jay, yes. the Jane Austen adaptation I was in. She's a remarkable person and a terrific director. And she was directing those videos, so that that kind of came from that. Um, it, it, it's uh, it's odd. I don't know how these things happen, but you know, connections are made, and one thing leads to another. Hmm. 
Um, in your career, you've made quite a few crowd pleasers, films that people watch over and over again. I know you don't watch your movies. Does it get weird hearing about these movies over and over again in specific scenes and things like that? Well, sometimes it's, on this one, it's been a bit strange because people say, because people are so taken with this movie that they yes. they do get down to details. And they say, you know the scene where you're, you know, sitting on the sofa <laughs> and you're like, well, not really. Uh, I, th I mean, I kind of remember sitting on the sofa, but I don't remember what happened. Uh, so that's, but, but it's okay because I'm not lying. I used to sort of, I didn't, did I lie? I probably did lie. I used to pretend, or at least I would allow people to have the impression that I'd seen the film because I right. thought it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to say, do you know what? I can't watch. Uh, but now I'm old enough, I can say, you know, I don't watch. But, uh, it's, but as for hearing about films over and over again, I don't mind at all. You know, I don't mind. The film that I think most, up until now, the film that most people talk to me about is, uh, I mean, with by a mile, because I don't own a car and I walk around everywhere and I meet a lot of people. And, um, and, and the film that they more than, and a lot of young people is about time, mm. <clears throat> you know, because that seems to, that's rude. That's a stayer, you know, yeah. you never know, but that's entered the language and it's, and it's not just buried somewhere. It's a, it's an active part of the, of the scene, you know, people are watching it. Uh, more than once and people are watching it for the first, you know, it's still going on. It's still happening. So that's probably, and it, and I think, it, and also Richard Curtis made a brilliant film and he really hit the spot and it and it's meant a great deal to people. Yeah. That, that's also a movie that I, it didn't have the biggest opening necessarily, but it's had quite a life. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, that's not an unfamiliar uh, trajectory for, uh, for Richard, I think. There's right. a certain level of criticism which is squeamish about feeling, real feeling. Um, but I'm, he's a, he, you know, it takes guts to make those films. It takes guts to, to make films about how remarkable we are, how tender and compassionate we can be to one another, how all of us uh, have, have an emotional connection with one another. And uh, there are plenty of films about suicide and heroin. If you want that kind of thing, you know, there's plenty of those. But he chose not. He chose to, you know, he chose to make searingly honest films about how how good people can be, rather mm. than they're never called searingly honest because you're, that's a, a phrase that's re re reserved for films about how bad people can be. Mm -hmm. I think, in a way, you can draw a line from that to a movie like Living in terms of what it leaves you with and the kind of spirit of it. Absolutely, yeah. It's one of those, you know, it's one of those films. You come out the cinema and you feel strangely, even though it's a sad story, you feel better. You feel uh, inspired in some way, even if it's just that you you've watched something that taps you into humanity or a feeling of um, of unifying a unifying kind of feeling that we you know we might all be in with a chance if we stick together. Hmm. I would guess that after 20 years of hearing about Love Actually, you probably may as well have seen it in terms of the amount of details well, you've been to be doing. honest, to be honest, Love Actually, I did watch. And I, okay. watched it, I watched it at the New York premiere because it was 20 years ago. And everyone was, there was a lot of pressure. There's always a degree of pressure. Sure. Because the director wants you to see it. They want, to, they want you to see what they've done and, you know, all of that. But, and I'm quite good at resisting that. Because <laughs> I have to, because it's a practical consideration and I have to. But when I went to New York and it was, you know, that film changed my life. It changed the way I go to work. It changed everything. Uh -huh. And I have, I 
can never be more grateful enough to Richard Curtis. And, um, and there was a big, you know, I'd never been to a big premiere where I had a reasonable part, you know, I had a great part. Um, and I, I went, uh, you know, I was there with my family and they, you know, I couldn't find a, uh, an attractive reason for hanging out in the lobby. Do you know what I mean? It yeah. would just, it would have just looked really weird. So I did sit down and watch it. And, and, and the thing about that is it got laughs. So if I get laughs, I'm sort of okay. Cause you just, cause that's indisputable. They yes. all laughed at the same time when I kind of arranged for them to laugh. So job done. Doesn't matter whether I, what I look like, doesn't matter what I sound like, you know, uh, it, you got laughs and that's, uh, that's, that's indisputable. It's kind of the feedback you'd learn, you'd learned from theater, I would think. Yeah, exactly. Precisely. Yeah. 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 Um, so after Love Actually, I believe you said you basically had to stop auditioning. Um, is there a role that you've played though, that you did have to really fight for? I had to, I actually had to fight for, to play Grand Santa in Arthur Christmas. Love it. <laughs> That's the best because, answer. Because Sarah, who made the film, the brilliant woman who made the film, she insisted, you know, and she was quite right. You can't just say, yeah, I'll play Grand Santa because you can't, because it's, it's too much of a risk to have somebody turn up on the first day and come up with some terrible voice. Sure. So yeah, I, I had to, uh, I had, I think I had a long audition. It was like on a microphone for some hours, you know, before, before she said, yeah, you got the gig. So I was very pleased about that. Um, I don't fight for roles. I've never fought for a role in my life. Not because I am above such things or anything, but it's just, it's, I don't know how you do it. And I, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm, and I've, I've never felt, I've never felt confident enough to do that. I know you hear stories about actors finding the producer's phone number, personal phone number, or going around their house and standing in their garden and saying, give me this, you know, I've, I've never, you know, I just wait and see what they say. Uh, I've never had the confidence really to, I've never had, I've really never had the confidence to do that. That does it for today's episode. We'll be back on Thursday with our last roundtable episode of the year, answering some of your uh, burning questions about award season. Uh, you can email us with those or anything else at littlegoldmen at vf.com or find us on Twitter at HWD or on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and David. David Canfield, 97. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a, a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts.